Sibelius is a 20th century composer. I mean, he's been a strong character in your composing life. Mm. Why? Um, it's just... It's just like... From the time... And I have many friends who react this way too, and... Uh, see, one of my great experiences in music, apart from administration, writing, things like that, is that I have a good circle of friends who are non-musicians, but who are music lovers. They're kind of the third peg in the three-legged stool. Somebody writes it, somebody plays it, somebody pays to listen to it, and they're the third leg. And uh, we all share this amazing love of Sibelius music. We're plenty of other composers too, but there's something special. It's like um, arriving home or something, you know. Everything about it is wholesome. Without thinking about it, you know, it has a physical effect. Of, uh, of a very beneficial nature. One of his early successes was um, Finlandia, which in fact had the effect of galvanizing the whole nation against the Russian oppressors and giving the people uh, um, an identity. Because you know, there were, the Finnish people were dominated by the Swedes for so long, and then the Russians. Um, if you listen to Finlandia now, you could say somebody who was in a vulnerable position like that, a nation that was in a vulnerable position, and they could hear this Finlandia. It's just an amazing experience. Is there a sense with symphonies that it's kind of an expression of confidence yeah. or your ambition as well? Well, uh, yeah, like a symphony can finish in many ways. They can finish in total despair. But they, more often than not, it's, it's an affirmation of, of wonder at the world. is similar to that of his first symphony with the addition of parts for double bassoon and celeste. There are four movements. Was that an ambition going for the symphony? It's that kind of personal yeah, ambition as a composer. Yeah, it's, like it's a wonderful release. It's, it's a physical release, you know. You only get it at times because you're actually working for a whole year. But when, when things begin to build up and you begin rereading and feel that the, the rhythmic curve is working and at the right time and with the right time expense and then you begin to feel it's almost like jogging or running you know um, and it's, it's a kind of physical thing the, the act of composition you know and here once again is Albert Rosen to conduct the RTE Symphony Orchestra in John Kinsler's Symphony Number no. 2 this is its first performance first two symphonies I was uh, flapping my wings and finding my ground and developing things and introducing things like uh, four trumpets instead of two which alters the whole orchestral sound and trying to get bigger and louder uh, but in proportion you know. 
then I, I just got this, I got this kind of idea when I'd finished the second and got the whole format of the third in my head, which came as a kind of a almost instant thought of what the form would be, although it took six months' work then to do that. Uh, it's basically two movements with things that happened before and in between at the very end, summations and that. But it was a totally novel format, and there are very few symphonies that actually are in that format. John Kinsella is Ireland's most prolific symphonist and one of the country's most exceptional composers of art music. In a creative career that spans over six decades, this self-taught composer has produced an incredible 11 symphonies, as well as numerous concertos, quartets, and instrumental chamber vocal and choral works. This November, John's 11th symphony will have its world premiere at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. Why did you feel that the symphony came naturally to you? I don't know. I was stimulated by, by like, my father had a record collection uh, of old 78s where wind-up gramophone and needles and things. And plenty of John McCormick, Richard Tauber, people like that. But in the, in the collection were Beethoven's pastoral and things like that. And I began to latch on to these things. And I obviously had become kind of very attracted to the whole idea that he began to buy more records and then he began to buy miniature scores, which I couldn't read. But eventually listening to the music and trying to get see what's going on in the score, which I eventually cracked down. So I, I must have had a an, an attraction there from a very early age, you know. Mm. Yeah. I have a book which which the family gave me on my 17th birthday and uh, the, the title is 16 Symphonies. You know, there's a chapters on 16 great symphonies. So it's obviously something I was drawn to very early on. Yeah. It wasn't a question of why symphonies, it was why not. Why not, yeah. Why not? Or dare you take me away from them? You made the point to me that it's probably like a novel. If in literature, it's probably writing essays and then deciding to, to write a novel. Yeah, you know, there are authors who write in a big, big way, you know, that they write huge statements. Like Beethoven in his Ninth Symphony conquered the world, really. He said everything that needed to be said. And many composers afterwards said, the symphony is dead now because nobody can do anything after that. As the war broke out, uh, my mum and dad went over to Manchester to visit some relatives. 
and we were left behind with an ant. And then there was some diktat come out that you couldn't travel back to Ireland because of the situation. So we had to go over there. And um, I've clear memories of um, wearing gas masks and being bombed and things like that, you know, by, and uh, which was all great fun, you know, at that age. And then we came back and, and, and things went back to normal again. post-war years of flux, as even the map of Europe was redrawn, new radical ideas in art music formed in the early 20th century were now wholly embraced and began making their way to Ireland. The term avant-garde, meaning vanguard, normally meant composers who were out ahead of others. Seamus de Barra is a composer and senior lecturer at the Cork School of Music. After the Second World War, it meant taking up the principle of serialism that had been developed by Schoenberg and expanding that or extending that uh, into what became known as total serialism or integral serialism. And this produced um, uh, a very distinctive sound world. And did something trigger it? Like, wh why did it evolve? Oh, well, now, that's an extremely interesting question. I have a theory about that myself. And that is the whole notion of um, the high modernism, you might call it, or the avant-garde after the Second World War. There was this sense that the period immediately after the war in 1945 was what you might call Stunde Null or Zero Hour. So everything was to start as though afresh tabula rasa from the present, not influenced by the past at all. For those unfamiliar today, can you give me a sense of what the Second Viennese School was? The Second Viennese School um, is the term that we use for primarily three composers, Arnold Schoenberg and his two pupils, Alban Berg and Anton Webern. Mark Fitzgerald is a musicologist and senior lecturer at TUD. Schoenberg is the person who brings classical music from this very saturated late romantic language that you get in, say, Wagner and also Brahms into the 20th century, where he gradually pushes tonality to an extent whereby we move to what's called atonal music or music that doesn't have a definite key centre. And so as a result of this, he devised what he calls uh, a system of composition with 12 notes, which is now known by most people as a serial system. You went on a trip to the Isle of Man. Well, that's one of my earliest memories. Talk to me about that. I, I couldn't have been anything more than about three or four, you know, when you have these kind of embryonic kind of pictures in your mind. Like, but I do remember standing on the deck of a day trip boat uh, to the Isle of Man and back.
and they had a tannoy system. And I heard the Strauss waltz, what I eventually found out was a Strauss waltz coming on the tannoy, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And that's, that's the earliest memory of something sort of saying, hey, you know, this is important, you know, because of the way you use the rhythms and that in it. <laughs> so that's the very earliest memory. And what do you remember? Like, what struck you? It was the um, the fact that I eventually found out there was one of the phrases in the walls that went da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-dum. And when you look at the music, that sounds repetitive, but from a, from a, a, a rhythmic point of view, those three phrases are all quite different in the emphasis you have to give to them. And it's quite subtle. And when I realised what, what Strauss was doing, it seemed like, you know, something I really have to know about this, you know. from that the this question of memory then in music uh, is a fascinating thing because music itself depends on memory but it wasn't just a question of obliterating the history of music and starting afresh with the history of music that the very nature of music itself that this forgetting was built into it because with this total serial thing of course all the events are connected by uh, an order which is not a musical order as such. It is a conceptual order uh, which is applied to musical sounds. And so essentially what the listener hears is a series of random or apparently random events uh, which the elements have no causal connection to one another or appear to have no causal connection to one another. Their, their association is just one of accidents that one happens to come after the other in time, but not because of the, of the one that came before it. And of course, this means the music is impossible to remember. One explanation is that this was some kind of traumatic amnesia to not only the Second World War itself, but to the revelations that had come out, particularly about German atrocities and what they consisted of um, after the war. So in other words, the entire culture, if you like, that had given rise to these terrible events couldn't be acknowledged and had to be obliterated from memory. As far as music went, the music of the past was to be uh, erased and um, the, the memory of the past was to be um, obliterated. <laughs> that is an extraordinary reaction to music on the part of musicians, I think. I kind of lost my way 
completely because uh, there were all these changes in music going on with the new styles in the early part of the 20th century we started filtering in into 12-tone music and that and the whole scene was changing with the result of people were just swimming around wildly wondering what to do do you hold on to the kind of classical paths and followers and develop it or do you get involved in this new 12-tone system and what was your answer to that question? I mean, did you well, I did you experiment? Did you go down there? Oh, I did, yeah. In fact, I, I was very lucky that I, I wrote quite a number of pieces for different ensembles, and I sent them into RTE. And uh, Gerald Victory was the, the director of music at the time, and he was a composer as well, so he was just as interested in, in what was going on. And um, there was a Dr. Hans Valdemar Rosen who founded the RTE Singers, and he was very encouraging as well. He'd just come in from Germany after the war. And I had a number of pieces broadcast in, in 12-tone style, you know. And uh, so it was a gradual move to try and find a style that actually worked for me. Can I go back, though, then? Like, when you said you lost your way, from 19 to when you started putting in the, the work to RTE. To RTE, yeah. There was a fair gap there, wasn't there? A big there? gap where I, did, I didn't do, do any compositions at all. I was just thinking about it, you know. And um, I had quite a happy time growing up, doing what people do at that time, you know. And all was at the back of my mind was you'd have to get your pencil out, you know. And uh, I even got to the stage where I'd look at the pencil and say, well, it wasn't sharp enough. So... That was an excuse not to do anything. So eventually um, I met this lovely girl, we got married, and in the, in the married life, one, one was in a more uh, benign, if you like, nice situation, and I got down. To, the first thing I wrote was a piece for her, you know, and that, that sort of got me going then. Yeah. What was that? That was a string quartet, yeah. Next comes a trio by John Kinsella, it dates from 1961 and has three movements. The first is marked moderato and develops two main tunes, the rather pastoral mood of the Largo second movement. I wrote this trio for clarinet, violin and cello. I got into the habit then of, um, like when the children came along, things like that, and when the house settled down around 7 o'clock, I'd, I'd gone right and got into the habit of doing that, and that's been with me all my life since, you know. Hans Valdemar Rosen used to do a weekly program which we would be and it wasn't a predictable mix of music so it could be could be anything um, in the classical music line. He was very much into the kind of forward movements at the time so we, we worked in parallel for a while. He was a great influence you know, a wonderful man. Were those works commissioned? No, I just sent them in I just sent in the scores At that time there was no commissioning of anything by anybody really so you didn't get paid? No, oh no, no. Not, I was delighted to get the works played. The canticle of comfort side its boy Beguiled in envy of our potency Shrouds round with acquisitions Illusion, vast misanthropy 
striking, original, and courageous. Composer Frank Corcoran. It's a long time now since I've met him, but uh, I've always respected his work, of course, and I do remember very early on his montage. Musical composition is complex, I think, because you have to learn an awful lot of technical things and instruments and so on, but it's also the most direct. It gets deeply under the skin very fast. My first memory of John is seeing him come up at the side of the hall. We were going to record a piece of his called Montage. Brian O'Rourke, former general manager of the RTE National Symphony Orchestra. I, I'd never seen the man before, we didn't really know of him, but um, somebody knew about him and that he was producing music and that it was worthwhile uh, recording. RTE was tremendously Catholic in its taste. Uh, if they thought that there was a work that should be recorded, they would record it. What was it like to hear your early compositions on the radio? Oh gosh, it's like an electric shock, you know, and to be in the studio with, with you know, really top-notch musicians and a wonderful conductor. It was um, something I, I, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, listening to the music live for the first time and being able to have an input talking about balance and things like that. It was a, a huge um, uh, stimulus for me, really, yeah. And to have people very much on your side during the recording, uh, I, I did learn a lot from those sessions, yeah, certainly. And when then did you join RT? How did, how did you get into RT? 1968, took up the Irish Times and saw this ad and went for it and eventually got it, the job. It was a senior assistant to the director of music. It was a great experience because it was across a lot of things, you know. You'd be home in the evening, give all your time to the kids, um, get sorted out to the point where things were settled down and that's great, and then head up. And instead of watching television, I'd be writing uh, music for maybe two hours. And if you do that steadily, day by day by day, you know, um, you can get an awful lot done, really. Looking back or listening back to the earlier ones, like something like Montage, what do you think of it now? Do you think it stood the test of time? Well, Montage 1, I, I think it worked okay, you know. It, it was a, a very unusual ensemble to write for. But um, I had a terrific singer, Mary Sheridan. I, I think it worked fine. I never went down that particular road again because I was setting this poem by a friend of mine. And uh, uh, that was just that, you know. When it came to Montage 2, then I was really experimenting with uh, as many new techniques as I could find. Twelve tones? Yeah. It was all to do with um, a particular moment in time where um, there was this relative who had a beautiful garden out in Bray and we used to bring the children out and he had been through all the battles of World War One, Passchendaele and, and Somme, everything like that. And I was just trying to catch this particular moment where he was working he could hear the children in the background playing in the garden. And just for a moment, maybe the whole darkness of the war hit his mind. You know, and it was a mixture of all these things, just in an instant, 
So the whole work is trying to catch that instant. I did use a lot of techniques, like uh, multiple string layers and uh, various types of 12-tone motifs and that. Really went for it from a brass point of view to, to make it as exciting as I could, really. Like a, a rush into your face when you remember something awful, you know, and then back to peace again. I, I'd stand over that piece, yeah. I've heard from the 60s uh, are quite modernist in idiom. You can hear things like late Stravinsky in them. Composer Kevin O'Connell. And of course, the curious thing about late Stravinsky is late Stravinsky was being written in the 60s. It's very contemporary music. And Stravinsky by that stage has gone uh, 12 tone uh, and serial. But it's interesting. I hear some of Leit Stravinsky and John's music of that period more than direct sort of bullish Stockhausen modernism. And it's interesting that already John, I think, is taking the thing, he's filtering it through his own preferences. He's not just swallowing it raw, what these composers in Europe were doing. And Stravinsky himself had very strict filters about what he would take in or reject from other composers, as you can imagine. I got, got a commission in 1979. No, I'll I, I go back a bit on that. Um, I, I, in around 1975, I got a commission for a string quartet. And um, I couldn't get down to it for a while. But... Um, I eventually got started on it in 19, the early part of 1977. And uh, that corresponded with the time where I knew that my, my first wife was dying. And the whole quartet is a diary of that time, you know. It was this a partly dodecophonic style and partly melodic. And uh, it's been played quite a lot since, you know. It's a very personal piece altogether, you know. And then after that, when she died, I had no desire to write music at all, you know. Vanbrook Quartet, who, who played it quite a lot, um, they didn't know the story behind it. We, we were heading off for a dinner one night and uh, we were in the car together and they said, 
that's a terribly frenzied piece altogether. What, what were you thinking at the time, you know? So I told them. And uh, they understood straight away, you know. I didn't consciously say this is a diary, but that's what it was in the end, you know. Your work was responding. Yeah, to the to situation, and yeah. it ends, it ends, and in, in nothingness, you know. our conversation saying I kind of lost my way with serialism yeah why do you think that well I, I lost my way in the sense that I had to stop and think and then I worked I've worked out a kind of system which I can fall back on dodecophonic thinking to give myself a, a kind of frame and then I just ditched the whole idea and worked from that frame on and, and it's put me in a different space altogether so I can use it as a, as a kind of injection of energy or something to rely on as a, as a, as a benchmark for moving forward you know it's a funny mixture no I, I get it yeah, yeah I understand yeah, 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 that yeah, yeah and eventually when I got back down to it I went for a much more melodic kind of idea and freed myself up and went with my own tendencies and took no, no notice of rules at all unless I wanted to refer back to something mm. to give myself a fresh start, you know. It's called Essay for Orchestra and lasts about 15 minutes. Albert Rosen, he played it. And then he said afterwards, uh, after a while, he said, you know, I think that could be the first movement of a symphony. And I said, okay. It didn't take me very long to finish the other three movements, so it was quite a long piece, you know. It's, it seemed to more or less write itself. Especially with the stimulus or somebody like that, sort of giving you a little vote of confidence and saying, go ahead and do something like that. These little things mean a lot at certain stages. And it can be the smallest thing and it'll affect you for the next 10 years. And that started me off and he said, you should stick to that. So I have a lot to thank him for. John's first symphony was written in his 50s, by which time he was now head of music at RTE. Let me bring you back, though, to you were composing Symphony Number no. 2 and then you were asked to write 
a piece, was it um, Synthesis? Oh, yes. You found that time challenging and you took time out to do it. Yeah. What happened there was that um, I'd been involved as head of music in engaging this new string quartet, which is resident in Cork. It, it was a format that had existed since the 1950s that there would be a resident quartet. So the time had come to appoint a new one. It turned out to be this young quartet from London, who were incredible, and they took on the job. A few months later, went for one of the big international prize competitions and they won it. So that kind of uh, validated our choice, if you like, in a sense. Um, but as a result of that, they were given an opportunity to play in the Wigmore Hall in London as part of their prize. And they asked me to write a piece for that as a thank you for the appointment, I suppose, you know. So I said, I have to concentrate on this. And I went up to Anne McCarrick and I said, I'd probably get this done in a week. It was be eight minutes long, you know. And one of the things in Anne McCarrick is that the only thing you have to do is appear for evening dinner. And I didn't turn up on two nights because I was so absorbed. And people came up, knocked on the door to see was I all right. And it was a terrific field, you know. I was in heaven, just with the, the buzz. I'd finished it in three days and was walking on air. And I said to myself, gosh, if I was full-time composing, I would uh, could do a lot. And that was the first spark. So I started um, seeing would it be possible to do such a thing and spoke to people in RT about it and it eventually worked out that with the help of a series of commissions to keep me going with the drop in salary because I was now married again and had two very small kids that that would bridge the gap financially so that I, I, could, um, I could retire. But it meant that I had to work like mad to write the pieces, you know, so... Everything was go, go, go. The buzz then, um, with the cold light of day, the financial decision of leaving, was it difficult? It was difficult, but we got over it. You know, the the DG at the time, Vincent Finn, was very helpful to me and... uh, I suppose he might have been very glad to get rid of me at the same time. But as a personal decision, I mean, was there a moment in the middle of the night you said, is this the right path? It, it wasn't easy. Um, but it was a, a mixture of that plus the excitement of being able to work. You know, and that, that overruled everything. century colleagues uh, say, oh, the symphony is dead. Frank Corcoran. At the moment, the symphony orchestra of the Western world is still with us. It may be true sociologically that that will die in the future, but as we have it now, it's one of the greatest, most powerful, most subtle instruments we have. It's a very demanding form. I mean, it is, it's criminally hard to write a symphony, is how I describe it. And, you know, people talk about, well, isn't it an unfashionable thing to do and all that? Of course it's unfashionable. A lot of things are unfashionable. But 
What no one ever mentions about why people don't write symphonies anymore is that it is so darn difficult. For me, it's a representation of a mature compositional voice, and it's like the culmination of your achievements that this is the crowning glory. Hazel Farrell is a lecturer at Waterford Institute of Technology. I can teach any student that this is the range of a violin, this is the range of whatever, you know, you can do this, you can do that. But at the end of the day, you, you really have to have a deep sense of every one of those instruments. And it's a skill that a lot of composers don't actually possess. It does take courage, especially when what you're doing is not quite uh, in the fashionable mould, because we all know the symphony is dead. But who cares about fashion? I mean, what are the fashions going to matter in 30 years' time? And I think the composers like Kinsella, they have that longer vision. symphony was based on the provinces of Ireland. The third movement, yes. can you talk me through that? Yeah, well, it's um, an essay in trying to portray a conflict. That's where Ulster was at that time. There's no end to it, there was no end to it at that stage. So you have these voices crashing into each other. Sometimes there's a pleading voice, sometimes there's a complete opposite which is just saying no, 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 no. First two symphonies are both large-scale uh, four-movement works. Seamus de Barra again. So you have, in overall shape, a very consciously traditional view of what the symphony actually should be. It's as though he wants to state absolutely clearly that I know what the responsibilities of being a symphonist are and taking on this genre. And this, this, this shows that I am clearly able to fulfill this large-scale romantic form. After the second symphony, the forms become more, more unpredictable. Because the third symphony is in two movements, the fourth symphony reverts to four movements, but in a very original way, not comparable to the first two. The fifth symphony is a symphony for spoken voice with solo baritone, setting of the 1916 poets. Then the sixth, seventh and eighth symphonies are one-movement symphonies. The ninth symphony is a movement for strings, and the tenth symphony is a three movements for smaller classical-sized orchestra, like the eleventh. Number 10 and number 11 were not commissions. No. Um, but you wrote them anyway. Oh, I, I wanted to write them, yeah. When I went to write number 10, I, I still wasn't interested in using a full orchestra again. So there's the classical orchestra up to the early Beethoven symphonies. That's what Mozart and Haydn, that was their standard orchestra. It's capable of producing a particular type of energy that the large orchestra cannot emulate. And I just felt like writing music that could sort of whiz like that and take off and, and not be bogged down by huge sounds. I've never sort of lost the um, excitement 
of sitting down to listen to maybe a large symphony. It's like a horse going out into a field and sniffing the air. You know, this is a big adventure starting now, which we're finishing in an hour and a half. And I still have that. years uh, from 1960 on up to 80s and that I really didn't have the time to take anything on like for all sorts of reasons and then I took the flying leap it was a fantastic period to to work at, at such high speed you know and the day I finished my third symphony and put it aside I started the fourth one so I was working at that high speed I, I'd been thinking about it you know Symphony number no. seven then has offstage elements. Yes. What was your thinking with that? Well, um, number seven is is a um, a direct tribute to or uh, making a statement about Sibelius' the Seventh Symphony, which has this um, wonderful moment in it. About five minutes after the work begins, when there's a wonderful build up on the strings, and you you just feel you're going to heaven. And when you've got there, this trombone comes in with this wonderful long note and a sequence. It's physically uplift, even thinking about it now. You know, I feel different. And uh, so, if you like, I, I began to dog that symphony, not copying or anything like that. It's just acknowledging the fact that it exists. And. Um, I use um, trombones in the orchestra, but there's also an offstage trombone as well. And that's like as if the present day trombone sound is talking with the past one, things like that. The thing about Sibelius 7 is that it's, it's, it's in C major, and the very end of it, is actually the move from B to C, da -da, you know, and he makes the most dramatic kind of click out of that, where you reach C major. So the end of, of my number seven uh, copies that in various ways in the solo viola, but it's in pure C major the whole way. It's like as if it pushes the ending of the Sibelius Symphony a bit further. Now, that's a silly thing to say, but it's my symphony, it's nothing to do with his, but again, I'm only just dogging ideas. And um, it's like it drifts away into eternity, you know. And with that, the idea of including that viola solo, because that is the instrument that you play. Yeah. Was that... That's me speaking, speaking across to my friend, you know. And... Uh, that happens in the 11th symphony as well, I'm still at it. The solo viola stuff in it, where I'm speaking across and acknowledging this amazing man who's had such an effect on many people's lives, you know.
I've been trying with starting another symphony and I've been at that now for about three months and it's only the other day that I found something that I think has a little bit of gold in it. I'll start worrying at it now and digging at it and, and then if it's like a flower and if it starts to open up then that's great. final piece of music you heard there closing that programme, A Symphonic Life, was the last movement from John Kinsella's Seventh Symphony. A complete list of the music featured in tonight's documentary can be found on the Lyric Feature webpage. John Kinsella, A Symphonic Life, was presented by Mary Brophy and produced and edited by Neil Boyle. It was an IWR media production commissioned by RTE Lyric FM. The programme is available to podcast from the Lyric FM website and from other podcast platforms.